Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's so much to discuss. We're in the middle of the most interesting days and and unique days of the entire year right now. So I just want to review a teaching because it's just been in the forefront of my mind and, and it should be in the forefront of your mind too. Because this is a great prism to see kind of the world through right now. And just to kind of cut to the chase, the old world is not here anymore. In other words, when God brings a new year, when Rosh Hashanah comes, it's not just God turning a calendar page. It's just not like Monday going into Tuesday, right? It's It's a whole order of magnitude different. It's a whole new creation that God's bringing into the world, a whole new universe and a whole new year. So the old world is not here anymore. But here's the interesting part. The new world isn't here yet either. That's the crazy thing. That's not going to happen until all the books are sealed, which is at the end of Yom Kippur. So the old world isn't here anymore, and the new world isn't here yet. Which means that we're in this timeless this timeless place right now. And our rabbis teach that God is closest to us the entire year during these days right now. And it's all so elegantly captured in this very fascinating gematria, which is shana, which means year, as in Rosh Hashanah, the word for year in Hebrew. The numerical equivalent is 355. Okay, great, but we all know that the year has 365 days. So why doesn't it equal 365? Because it should. If Hebrew is Lashon HaKodesh, if it's the holy tongue and God made the whole world out of it, and you can zero in on Hebrew words and get an x-ray of the cosmos, so then why doesn't the word for year equal 365? And the amazing thing is, is that it does, and it also teaches us something dramatic which is the world hasn't been formed yet. And it's 10 days, this period of time. Well, if you add 10 to 355, you get 365. Ah, it all comes together in the deepest, most beautiful way. But that means that we have an opportunity right now that we don't have for the rest of the year. I heard Rabbi Tatz put it this way one time, and I just, I just thought, wow, he just nailed it. Here it is, it's so visual and simple. Imagine you build this big skyscraper, right? Like, let's say 50 stories. And you look at it and you go, ah, all the windows should have gone on the other side of the building. <laughs> so that's, that is a major correction that needs to take place. Major, right? You got to, okay, you get the idea. But what if you notice that mistake But what if you notice that mistake while the building was still in its blueprint form? Then all you need to do is you take an eraser, you erase the windows, and you put them on the other side of the building. It couldn't be easier. So that's where we are right now in terms of the year. Right now, the blueprint for the year is still taking shape. And so major adjustments in terms of your mazel, in terms of your destiny, in terms of just how the year is going to roll out, 
can be made right now dramatically easier than after Yom Kippur because we're in these 10 days where formation is still taking place. Okay, so Rabbi David Aaron gave such a great teaching. He explained what this word chet means. Chet is, is translated as sin. By the way, sin is not a Jewish word. We, we don't have this word sin, but it's, it's a, you know, I guess it's an easy, an easy kind of English equivalent. But sin has all these theological overlays to it that, that just aren't really Jewish. So, so, you know, if you have issues, <laughs> if your soul has issues with the word sin, there's a reason why it does, because it's not a Jewish word. Chet is a Jewish word. And I'm going to talk about chet for a moment because it really gives you a great insight into us and God and forgiveness and, you know, doing right, doing wrong and what Yom Kippur is all about. So let's zero in on what this, this Hebrew word tells us about where we are right now in our lives. So, so Rabbi Aaron tells this story. He was walking by a soccer field in Israel and someone, you know, like kicked the ball and it missed the goal. And everyone started yelling, hate, hate. So if you're, if you're listening to that with rabbi's ears, you know, it sounds like people are saying, he sinned, he sinned. But obviously they're just in the middle of a game of soccer. No one did anything wrong. So, so what does the word actually mean? It actually means to miss. Hate means to miss. So that's, that, that's really interesting. You see... When you do something wrong, when you do something against the Torah, when you don't do a mitzvah, you either did too much or you did too little. You missed the mark. And that's just a wonderful way to conceptualize our lives and our obligations and what it means to do, well, wrong right now. Or let's, let's put it in the positive. What does it mean to do right? That means you did just the right measure of something. So, so let, me, let me give you an example. Let's, you know, I don't know if you know this, but do you know that you're not allowed to walk by a poor person on the street without, without doing something? That, that's, that's Torah. So what does that mean exactly? Well, ideally, you're giving the person some money. Now, by the way, and, and this is, I think, important, especially for women. If you feel as though that person who's often homeless and, you know, Rahman al-Atzlan, very, very tragic, sad, but, but true, often mentally unstable and therefore potentially dangerous, you have to be mindful of your safety. And that's true for men as well. So you can't put yourself in a dangerous situation. And, and by the way, my son just moved to New York City. And one of the first things that I told him before he moved, and my mother told me, was that when you're walking down the street, you have to be careful not to make eye contact with people who look very mentally unstable. Because that's a trigger for them. And they can just make a beeline for you and attack you. So in general, it's very important to make eye contact with people. But while we're on the subject, I'm just giving you some survival skills. In general, though, under normal circumstances, you're not allowed to walk by a poor person on the street. 
You have to give them some money. And by the way, when you give them the money, you have to say something nice to them. It's not just enough to give them the money. You just say, you know, God bless you, or you're doing great, or hello, or nice to see you. Just some encouraging words with the tzedakah multiplies the blessing that you receive and the amount of light that you're putting out in the world dramatically, by the way, the Talmud says that. So it's tzedakah and chesed. They say that the tzedakah is like a seed that you plant and the chesed, the kindness that you add to it, is like watering the seed. So there's this two-part dynamic when you do good things. You want to do the good thing and then you want to give the encouragement along with it. So that's like planting a seed and watering the seed. And that imagery is from the Talmud, by the way. But let's say you don't have any money or just circumstances are such that can't stop for whatever reason. Then you smile. And again, I'm just telling you stuff from the Talmud. So everything I'm telling you right now is very ancient. And why smile? And the logic is so poetic and beautiful. And again, from the Talmud, it says that the white of your teeth nourishes them like you're giving them milk to drink. So on a very deep level, they can't take your smile into the store and buy something with it. So how is that really helping them? Because when someone is so alienated that they're literally sitting on the sidewalk with their back against the building, they're so alienated and disenfranchised from life that a smile makes them realize that they exist. It reassures them on a very, very deep level that they exist and that they're still recognized and that they're still part of society. And in a way that's even deeper than feeding them. Okay, so, so these are all examples of how to give tzedakah and how to behave in terms of just walking down the street in your normal life. So why am I saying that? Because we're talking about doing wrong right now. We're talking about the word chait, and we're going to get back into that in a moment. To, to do a chait means to miss. That means that you did too much or you did too little. And we're going to analyze that dynamic in terms of wrongdoing in a moment. But I always want to give you the positive, right? Because again, the Talmud says that anything that's true for the negative, and get ready, is 500 times more true for the positive. Again, that's the Talmud's math. 500 times more true when you do something right than when you do something wrong. Okay, so... So I want to tell you that that hate means to miss the mark, but a lot of times we're getting it right. We're getting the ball in the goal. So when you walk by a person who's on the street and you do one of the things that I just told you, you give them money and you give them encouraging words or you just smile at them or whatever it is, that's a goal. So that's an example of hitting the mark. Okay, great. So now let's go back to missing the mark. What does it mean to miss the mark? Now, what I'm about to tell you is, is deep, okay? So as Rip Shlomo would say, open up your hearts because you have to understand the, the I'm going to get fancy with you, the psycho-spiritual dynamic that's going on in terms of a lot of our brains that we're not in touch with when we do wrong. When I give in to a temptation of some sort and fill in the blank, could be anything, could be anything. When I give in to 
wrongdoing or behavior that the Torah isn't asking me to do. What I feel like is at that moment, I'm divorcing myself from God. And I'm, I'm telling you just what is going on in the recesses of our mind, either consciously or unconsciously, or what we're experiencing on a soul level. We feel as though we are pushing God aside and we are doing our own thing at that moment. So, so that's not true. That's not true. Even though we feel it, but it's not true. Because God doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> God stays right there. And now let's analyze the Hebrew word chet, because there's something tremendous going on in this word. So how do you spell chet? So it's the letter ches, that gives you the ch sound. Then it's the letter tet. So that should be enough to spell chet. Chet, tet, chet. Except that's not how you spell it. The letter Aleph is at the end of that word. Now, Aleph is a silent letter. Not only that, but Aleph stands for God. Why? Because Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which means it has the numerical assignment of the number one. So Aleph stands for one, and God is one, right? Nothing exists other than God, and God is one. There are no other powers except it's even further than that. <laughs> because as we all know by now, the letter Aleph is actually a combination of three letters, the upper Yud, the diagonal letter Vav, and then the lower Yud. And we know that if we add up those three letters, it adds up to 26, which is the numerical equivalent of God's holiest name, the Yud Ke Vav Ke, the four-letter name of God. So Aleph is working on all these multiple levels representing Hashem. Now again, you can spell the word wrongdoing, chet, without the letter Aleph. You don't need the letter Aleph at the end of it, especially since it's silent. So why is it there? In order to tell us something absolutely crucial, that God is with you when you rise to the highest heights and when you descend to the lowest depths, God is right there with you. He doesn't go anywhere. He's right there. You know, Reb Tzadik Hakon said something very, very deep because he, he really talks about this. And to Kanesh HaShavin and I'm sure other Sfarim as well. He says that if you have kosher food and you make it unkosher, right? The food is now unkosher. <laughs> the kashrus aspect of it disappeared. It went away. Also, we have a phenomenally wide-reaching and complex set of laws of purity and impurity. Like you couldn't walk into the Holy Temple in a state of spiritual impurity. You had to go into the mikveh and all sorts of other things. Tahara and Tuma. That's how you say it in Hebrew. And if something is Tahor, if it's pure, it is not impure. And if something is impure, Tame, it is not Tahor. The two of these things co cannot coexist at the same time. So people apply that model to their relationship with God. And they think, I can't be two things at the same time. I can't be pure and impure at the same time. If I've done something wrong, I have exiled God. Except you haven't. 
The logic is great, except it doesn't apply in this sense because God never leaves you. That's the simple reality of the world. Because if God left you, guess what? You wouldn't be here anymore. The very fact that you're still breathing and the fact that you still exist is testimony that God is still with you. Okay, now look, there's stages of closeness. And Yom Kippur and really Torah in general, our lives in general, is all about our relationship with God, which is our central, most important relationship. Okay. I was a really bad student, you know? And by, by, by that I mean I was like really not studious. I mean, I, I could follow certain advanced ideas and things like that and hopefully participate in the conversations. But in terms of what it takes to be like a quote-unquote scholar, that, I'm, I don't have that personality. I, I, I'm trying to develop that personality over the years, but I, I don't have that personality. I didn't do well in high school. I, I don't know how I got into Harvard exactly, but it happened. And at Harvard, I was really a, a, really a, a very mediocre student, okay? The classes that I was interested in, I, d I did well in. But for the most part, I just wasn't studious. I had my group of friends and the various parties, and I had a wonderful time. <laughs> but in terms of academics, that wasn't me, okay? Now, why am I telling you this? Because I, I would be consumed with guilt because I wasn't doing the work that was, you know, required by the courses. And I remember that I had, I think, a, a thesis due. Uh, a thesis, by the way, that my thesis advisor, when I finally turned in some pages, I'll never forget it. I walked into the room. This was my senior thesis at Harvard. He spun around in his chair, in his swivel chair. His back was to me when I entered the room. He swiveled around to face me. And this was, he was now giving me his response to the pages that I handed in. And he said, this ends here. <laughs> I literally was fired from my own thesis. He was like, I'm, I'm not having this. This is, this is ridiculous. What you handed in is ridiculous. And we're not pursuing this idea of you writing a senior thesis anymore. It was very embarrassing. It was very embarrassing. But let me tell you how consumed with guilt I was before I saw him. You know, because Harvard squares it's an urban setting and you know it's like streets and corners and all the rest like you know like a grid like a city grid but you know more quaint and all the rest i would literally when i would reach the corner of a block i would peek my head around the corner to see if my thesis advisor was there before i would walk down the block i mean this is advanced level guilt slash craziness right and I did that over a period of weeks. I remember it. It's like traumatizing for me to even think about. This is not our relationship with God. <laughs> and if it is our relationship with God, something is wrong. And, and we have to get out of this idea that God is the prosecuting attorney and we've been given a job where we automatically fail from the outset because we're human beings. And now I have to hide from God 
or come up with my own independent, made-up theology to insulate myself from the truth of the universe so that I can get through life. You know, that might be okay during my 20s or my teenage years or maybe my 30s, but at a certain point, we've got to say, hey, Einsteinium is not Californium. (laughs) I just can't make up what the reality of the world is and decide that that's what's convenient for me. We, we, we can't, we can't afford to. Because at the end, God gets the last laugh, not us. You know, we should only know good news and happy occasions and everything. But, but let's be real for a moment. Every single thing can be taken away from a person. But you know what can't be taken away from a person? Their relationship with God. It can't be taken away. Not in this world and not in the next world, right? Because we have souls, which is a piece of God. And remember, Judaism doesn't believe in death. There's just life inside the body followed by life outside the body. And it's a seamless continuity. Now, we're realistic. We know what's going on. At a certain point, people shed their bodies. And we call that death. But from the person's standpoint... The person never stops existing. So it's the same thing with us and God. When we do wrong, maybe we might distance him on some level. We impact our relationship. But does he leave us? He never leaves us. He never leaves us because if he leaves us, then there's no world anymore. (laughs) Someone gave me this bit of imagery. I, I love it so much, which is imagine a room with no windows. And the lights are on in the room. The door is closed. And then if if someone in the world isn't learning Torah, according to the Nefesh HaChayim, right? He was the greatest student of the Vilna Gon. If someone in the world isn't learning Torah, somewhere, at least one person, the entire world disappears. Torah is the nuclear fusion chamber keeping all of reality going, okay? Well, it's God who's doing it but he looks to us to be partners with him. So here's the imagery. Imagine that windowless room, and now you're standing in it, and now imagine someone just hits the light switch and everything goes dark. In other words, the entire universe can just disappear like that. So the fact that there's still a world here, and the fact that we're still here, means that God is still here with us and God is keeping it going. You know, I remember in the early days of the Happy Minion, there was kind of a a board, but we never like really wanted to identify ourselves so much. I mean, mean, sometimes I guess it was unavoidable, but you know, we never wanted it to be the consciousness like, you know, these are the people who are praying and we're the board, which, you know, is like ridiculous arrogance and, you know, whatever. But someone like made this point and said, no, people should know what this organizational structure is and and they should know who the board is. And we really resisted that and everything like that. And then I remember he he said this one time, he said, do you really think that you're doing so much that you have to hide? <laughs> like, you're not doing so much. And I loved it. 
We call that musr, right? But that's like musr you can kiss. It's so sweet. So the thing is, is that, you know, be a little less dramatic. Maybe you did something wrong, but do you really actually think that you're capable of alienating God? Do you think you're actually capable of driving God out of his own world, which he inhabits? So, you know, let's be real. I want to tell you something. Some people have a block when it comes to Yom Kippur. And the block that they have regarding Yom Kippur is that they don't feel as though they're worthy of being forgiven. And that's real. That's real. A lot of people feel that way. But you know, we have to take ourselves seriously. But you can't take yourself too seriously. And what does it mean to take yourself too seriously? It means that you actually think that you're capable of driving out God. That if God actually wants to do something, like forgive you, God gets to do that because it's God's world. And they talk about this in the, in the commentaries, you know? Like, like if the king wants to forgive you, imagine the king wants to forgive you. This is the example they give, by the way. The king wants to forgive you and you go up to the king and you say, oh, king, you can't forgive me. And the king says back to you, what are you saying I can't forgive? This is my, this is my country. And I get to decide what I want to do. And I want to forgive you. It's like, wow. Okay, well, I didn't really look at it that way. I didn't look at it that way. So just like God commands us to do certain things, God also commands his own forgiveness because that's what he wants to do. So then the ball goes into our court. Do we forgive ourselves? Do we accept that forgiveness? And again, not to accept that forgiveness is again to take oneself a little bit too seriously. Like, why aren't you accepting God's forgiveness? You're so great. You're so bad. Right? There's like, there's a shred of arrogance in it. It, it sounds strange what I'm saying. I know. For a, for a lot of you, maybe. But there's a shred of arrogance in not accepting God's forgiveness. So, so Reb Sadek says, what did this snake do to us? Now listen very carefully. He says, this snake convinced us that there's such a thing as a place where God isn't. I'll say that again. What did the snake do to us? What is the definition of zuama, which means snake poison, which we were injected with? Okay, so these are all very Kabbalistic ideas, but what is, let's just get to the nitty gritty of it, okay? What does it actually mean? That means in our consciousness, 
a thought was implanted within us that there's such a thing as a place where God isn't. And it's not true. That even when we go to a place of impurity or wrongdoing, God is there. That's why the letter Aleph, which is completely unnecessary for the spelling of the word chet, is part of the word chet, because God never leaves us, ever, even in our wrongdoing. And remember, chet means wrongdoing. Okay, so now I want to get back to this idea of what does it mean to miss? You're either doing too much or you're doing too little. So for the men out there, you know, every morning, except Shabbos and the holidays, we've got to put on tefillin. That's, that's a huge mitzvah, and it takes five minutes, right? There's a version where you put it on, you say the three paragraphs of Shema, you take it off, and you're off for the rest of your day, okay? It's, it's, it's a very crucial mitzvah. So what does it mean to do too little? It's not that you're existing independent of God. Remember, God is not a thought in your head. We are thoughts in God's head, and God doesn't have a head. Okay, this is, this is the thing. So many people think that God is a thought inside their head, and it couldn't be more inside out. We exist within God. I once thought of this example, which is, imagine there's a, I'm a man, so I'm going to give this from a, the male point of view. Imagine the, the, a man's getting married, right? And he's, he knows everything about his wedding. He knows all the guests that are there. He's in the banquet hall. He knows how much the flowers cost on each of the tables. He knows who's sitting at every single table. He knows the band that's going to be playing. He knows what time he's supposed to be out of the banquet hall in terms of the contract that he signed with the caterer and the building and everything. He knows absolutely everything except one thing. Which one of these people did I marry? <laughs> I mean... It's so, it's funny, and it's really sad at the same time. He knows absolutely everything except the one thing he needs to know. There's only one thing he needs to know on the day of his wedding. Who he married. And that's the one thing that he doesn't know. The world we're living in, there's this ridiculous explosion of information. I'm not even exaggerating. The history of world civilization, you are actually carrying around in your pocket. <laughs> and you can call it up in seconds, any aspect of it. And yet, the one thing, the one thing that we need to know, we don't know, which is that there's a God who created it and keeps all of us going, and who loves us the most. Right? There's also doing too much. Like, all right, you, someone did something wrong. So you tell them, you know, can you please not do that again? And then you start yelling. 
Why are you yelling? It's too much. It's too much. Now the person who did the wrong thing is on the defensive. And now they're angry at you. You're angry at them. They're angry at you. You know the expression, putting out fire with gasoline? So when you start yelling, you're putting out fire with gasoline. Be a human being. Someone did something wrong to you, say, you know something? I, I, I have to be honest with you. You hurt my feelings. And then see what they say. And if they need some time to think about it or whatever it is. The goal is peace. The goal is not revenge. People want an apology, but they want it on the level of taking revenge from the person. Now I'm going to make you apologize. That's not an apology. That's not peace. That's revenge. Revenge is against the Torah. You're not allowed to take revenge. There has to be justice. But justice and revenge are two different things. Revenge is too much. You're missing the mark. With Yom Kippur coming, there are a lot of us who need to apologize. And there are a lot of us who are waiting for apologies. And, you know, while we're on the subject, if I heard anybody this year, I promise you it wasn't intentional. And I'm very sorry. And if, if what I'm saying right now is not enough, and it very possibly may not be enough, because I'm just making a blanket statement right now, although I'm having all of you in mind, please email me and tell me what I did so that I can give you a proper apology. I mean that very, very sincerely. And for those of you who are waiting for an apology, can I, can I just give you some advice? Forgive the person without the apology. And this is, this is not my advice, you know? This is, this is an ancient Jewish idea. Just, just forgive them. And you can still want the apology. It doesn't mean that you're letting them off the hook for the apology. But you have already given the forgiveness. And there's a lot of soul cleansing that comes with the forgiveness itself. One of Reb Shlomo's main, main, main teachings is you have to cleanse the anger from your heart. You have to get the anger out of your heart. Anger is a toxin. It's toxic. Now, if someone owes you an apology, they owe you an apology, but you can give the forgiveness right now. And I'm not talking about calling them and saying, I forgive you, even though you haven't apologized. Although, if the circumstances are appropriate and you want to do that, and you can do it in a way that doesn't provoke them, but actually makes them feel at ease, so now that they feel comfortable apologizing, if you can find the proper words and say, look, I just want you to know, I've been holding on to this thing, and, you know, maybe you don't even remember, but at that event, you know, my, you really hurt my feelings. I'm just being honest with you. I just want you to know. And I want you to know I forgive you, but I don't even know if you know that I've been holding on to this, and I just want to let you know that this has been going on. And then if the person's a mensch, if the person's an upright individual, they'll go, oh, you know what? That's been bothering me too. And I've been afraid to say something. Or they'll say, oh my God, I didn't even realize that I did that. Or 
thank you so much. This has always been so awkward for me, but I apologize. And they'll take the, they'll take the opportunity to apologize. But that's, that's not the point that I'm making. That, 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 is a, that is a path that is available. But the main thing that I'm saying right now is don't wait for the apology. Just go ahead and forgive them because you will be the beneficiary of that. You'll let it go. There's an excellent chance the other person isn't even thinking about it anymore and that the apology is never going to come. All the more reason to let it go. And why are you going to be the beneficiary? Because there's some darkness that's been taking residence in your heart. And you got to get the darkness out of your heart. And if you forgive them, and again, it can be sort of like a conditional thing. You can say, I hope that they will still apologize to me one day. Something like that. And then you just let it go. Yom Kippur is basically, and maybe we'll get into it a little bit, Yom Kippur is basically a time-space mikvah. That, that, that's, that's really what it is, by the way. The Bnei Yisachar brings it down. It's mind-blowing Torah. It's not that hard, but you, you have to kind of concentrate for a moment. So when is Yom Kippur exactly? It's 40 days after the beginning of the month of Elul. What happened on the first day of the month of Elul? The sin of the golden calf is getting forgiven. And Moses is going and he's climbing Mount Sinai again with the second tablets, right? The first ones were broken. These are the second ones now. And when does he come down with the second tablets? An event that never happened with the first tablets because he broke them before he came down. Okay, he broke them before the sight of the Jewish people, really to make a point and to save us because we basically were in violation of idol worship. And basically what Moses did, and again, this is the Talmud's explanation, by breaking the tablets, it wasn't just a, a you know, a fit of anger, like, you know, ah, now Moshe's mad. Oh, great, you made Moshe mad, everyone. That, that's, not, that's not what it was. Much deeper than that. Moshe was ripping up the contract before we could sign it. Because in that way, we were not in violation of the contract. Do you understand? Because the final sealing of the contract was when he came down on terra firma, on firm ground, with the tablets themselves. That final step never took place. He was saving us. That's why he broke the tablets. Very important, because one of the great slanders that other religions say about Judaism is that, oh, the Old Testament God is the God of justice. I mean, it's, it's so perverse. The term Old Testament is so perverse. Do you know what Old Testament means? That means, oh yeah, isn't it nice? That's what it used to be. But now there's this new thing. There is no new thing. <laughs> the Torah is the Torah. It never ended. It never ended. It never became old. It never became old. Okay? So a, a lot of people are so used to that phrase, the Old Testament, that they don't realize it's an absolute slander against God, that phrase. So it's just the Torah. And by the way, Reb Shlomo told me, just so you know, he said, don't use the word Bible. He said, say Torah. And I think that that's a, a very revelatory thing because I don't know what the Bible is, honestly. And I'm trying to know what the Torah is. I'll spend the rest of my life in this world and the next trying to understand the Torah because it's infinite. 
But that, so to speak, is the mind of God, right? The Bible, I don't know what the Bible is. So, anyway, let's get back to this amazing teaching that the B'nai Yisachar brings. So it's 40 days. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain with the second tablets on the first day of the month of Elul, and he comes down to firm ground, which didn't happen before. 40 days later, on what day? What is 40 days later? Yom Kippur. Wow. That's what Yom Kippur is? The day that Moses appeared with the tablets of forgiveness? That's what Yom Kippur is? I didn't know. You know, there is no Judaism without Torah. The whole world is made out of Torah. You are made out of Torah. The rabbis teach that every single human being has 613 parts to them, which correlate with the 613 commandments. Everything is made out of Torah. Okay, so here's the teaching. I told you that Yom Kippur is a time-space mikvah. There's lots of different types of mikvahs. So nature's mikvah would be a running river, like Mayim Chayim, right? Living waters. So if you ever are in a place where, you know, there aren't any people around or something like this, unlike the lake I went into in Poland a few weeks ago behind a shopping center midday <laughs> with eight other guys, <laughs> unlike that, not, not recommended behavior, but, you know, if you can do it privately and you've got a river there, you can take a mikvah. That's 10,000% that's kosher, beautiful experience. A lake, kosher mikvah, absolutely fantastic mikvah. How about the ocean? The world's largest kosher mikvah, fantastic mikvah. The ocean is great and there's a way to go in. You know, where you can sort of like hand someone your bathing suit, right? And, you know, you can just kind of do it and no one's the wiser. You can have a mikvah experience right there. You have to be careful and sensitive that you're not in violation of being immodest. You want to make sure that, that you're doing holy things in holy ways. And then you have what we more commonly think of a mikvah is the ritual bath, quote unquote, that exists at different places in the city. Now, if you want to make a mikvah, lots of laws pertaining to it, you have to start off with, it's got to be rainwater. And by the way, you want to hear something really cool? There are a lot of places where they want to make mikvahs and there is no rainwater because it doesn't rain so much. So in Los Angeles, they just made a new mikvah, a brand new mikvah. And actually they're making a few mikvahs now. It's like really like, Jewish life in Los Angeles is really just going up, 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 up. And, you know, everyone's mindful that the mikvah experience should be a beautiful experience, ideally. And, and so now people are sort of like really kind of pumping money into them to make them like more beautiful and really to make the whole experience like a much more elevated experience, which is so great. You know, that's just another great sign of the renaissance of Jewish life that's going on in the world today. But anyway... What do you do when it doesn't rain? So what did they do here in LA? They went up into the mountains and they brought back on trucks, you ready for this? Bags full of snow. Because what is snow? 
it's just frozen rain and you need rainwater. And so they were able to truck snow, which is rainwater, in order to create these mikvahs. Isn't that something? Very cool. But the idea is you need 40 measurements of water, and it's called a saw, okay? That's a Torah measurement. You know, wait a second. Didn't we just say that there are 40 days between the first day of the month of Elul and Yom Kippur? And there's these 40 measurements of water that create a mikvah? Now, let's just take it to the next level. Believe it or not, like a gallon is divided up into a certain number of pints, right? Well, this measurement that you need 40 of, each one of those is divided up into a smaller measurement, and guess how many of those you need to make one saw? 24. Wait a second. They're 24 hours in one day. <laughs> wow, right? So do you see how Yom Kippur is a time-space mikvah? There's 40 measurements, 40 days, and each measurement is composed of 24 parts, and you've got 24 hours in each day. This is divine. Like, you can't make this stuff up. This is literally divine. From the moment the month of Elul starts culminating into Yom Kippur, the water is just dripping. The holiness, the holiness, the forgiveness. The purity is just dripping, dripping, dripping into the world. And you know what happens on Yom Kippur? The last drop comes in and you have 40 measurements. And now all of a sudden you're, in, you're existing in this time-space mikvah that you're completely immersed in. Okay. So, so I started off by just reviewing that the old world isn't here and the new world isn't here. And we're in these days in between. And whatever we do right now, we have this awesome opportunity, right? Because we're, we, we've got the blueprint right now. And any adjustment that we make in our behavior right now is going to have a disproportionate effect on our entire year. Now, so many people... They go through life just pulling the past into the present, right? They've got their back to the future. Their whole orientation is just looking at the past and they're just pulling the past into the present, the past into the present, the past into the present. And that's how they go through life. How about turning around and just facing the future? There's a... English rock band, The Clash, has a lyric, the future is unwritten. Very powerful lyric, the future is unwritten. And that's true and, is, and it isn't true, by the way. The future is written in the sense that Mashiach comes, the world is going to reach its state of perfection because that's what God had in mind from before creation, right? That's why we're here, to be partners with God, to bring about that vision that God had from the very outset. So, to a certain extent, the future is absolutely written. There's a happy ending. But you know what isn't written? 
What is your role going to be in that? That's not written yet. Right now we get a chance to figure out what kind of role do we want to play. And God wants to know. That's what the prayers are, by the way. The prayers are God is listening. He says, what, what role do you want to play? And how much are you living in the world that I'm creating? Because God gives us the option to live in our own world and to make up our own version of reality. But believe it or not, there's an objective reality. <laughs> and it's in the mind of the creator. And can I just can I tell you something? Just like carbon isn't, you know, you know, one of the elements, it's one of the newer elements. People don't talk about it so much. Einsteinium, believe it or not, that's one of the elements on the periodic table. I'll tell you another one, Californium. You don't hear these elements talked about too much. But, but Californium is not Einsteinium. There's two different things. And you know what? It's really good if your version of reality is also God's version of reality because it God, because it's God's reality that we're living in. But he gives us, he gives us the choice to say, no, 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 it's really this. And God says, okay. Okay. If, if that's what you want to believe, I mean, okay, fine. But you know what would be even more amazing? How about if you actually lived in reality? the actual reality. You say, oh, but wait a second, that means I'm gonna to have to change this, that, and the other thing. Okay, so one step at a time. But you know something? Our souls, more likely than not, have been here before, and more likely than not, they've been here several times. And you know, we should want to get it right this time. And to get it right means to understand the actual reality that we're living in. And that might require some humbleness. It might be like, well, I've sort of been doing it this way for a long time and it's been going okay. Well, that's what you think. That's what you think. Because there's a judgment at the end of our lives and then we get our grade. Did you ever think you did really well on a test and then you didn't? That happened. That was my regular experience in college. I thought I did so well. The teacher felt otherwise. We're, we're all going to have that moment. Right? We're all going to have that moment. So wouldn't it be great if we prepared ourselves for that moment? And I'll give you what I just said sort of more freeform in the more classic presentation. There's the book of life and the book of death. And that's what's going to be sealed on Yom Kippur. You know, by the way, Reb Shlomo would never say those words. He would say there's the book of life and the book of not so much. But for the purposes of what I'm about to tell you, just you, you need it for the clarity for what I'm about to tell you. The Shem Mishmur, right? That was the the grandson of the Kutzka Rebbe. So he said, you know what the book of death is? He said that all the bad parts within us go away. Isn't that awesome? It's the opposite of what people think. The opposite of what people think. 
I'm taking all those parts of me that I don't want anymore. And that's the book they're going in. That interesting? Whole another universe of thought in that. But let's get back to the book of life because it's all about the book of life. And the book of life, by the way, the Ramban says, the book of life means all the good things of, a, of what we call a good life. That's what the book of life stands for. Not just another year of breathing. Okay, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. So, the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, who wrote the first Hasidic book ever, you know, one of the top, top students of the Baal Shem Tov, he said that we sign ourselves in the book of life. And Reb Moshe Shapiro Elavashalom explained so deeply, so deeply, based on the Vilna Gon, on something in Sefi Yitzira, what does it mean to sign yourself in the book of life? And it's just what I was talking about a few minutes ago. He says, there's the author, and God, so to speak, is the author. There's the author, and there's a book. Now, it's very possible, even likely, to read a book, but not to read the book that the author wrote. In other words, the author wrote it. But the way you're reading the book is not what the author had in mind when he wrote it. See, this world is compared to one big book because the world itself is made out of the Torah. So how are you looking at the world? Are you looking at the world the way God made it? The way God wants it? The way God wants us to see it? and interact with it? If you're looking at the world that way, then you are in sync with the mind of the creator, with the mind of the author. And that is the act of writing yourself into the book of life. That's deep. That's really, really deep. And to the extent that you say, you know what? You know, I've gotten to this age. I got a pretty nice house, got a pretty good car. I'm doing all right, just the way I'm reading the world. Well, that's good for now, I guess. <laughs> you didn't get your blue book back. You didn't get your report card back yet. And don't you want to prepare for that moment? I do. And I'm not, by the way, trying to scare anybody right now. That's not the point. We need the information that we need in order to succeed in this world and the next. We need this information so that we can make intelligent choices with our life. So I'll just end with a blessing. The first is that we shouldn't, we shouldn't let this snake poison, so to speak, this thought that there's a place where God isn't to continue in our minds or our hearts and to know that even when we descend to the lowest place, God is right there with us. We haven't divorced him. We haven't exiled him. We're not somehow magically living in a universe that, that he doesn't inhabit. That God is not a thought in our head. 
that we're a thought in God's head and God doesn't have a head, right? That the word hate is spelled with this mysterious Aleph at the end, which is silent, which it doesn't need, which stands for God to tell us that even when we miss the mark, he's still there. And also to be in sync with the ultimate reality, to be in sync with the ultimate reality, even if that means letting some things go or trying some things that we're not exactly comfortable with. God just wants to see that we're trying and to take it a step at a time, right? You don't have to do it all overnight. You take a step at a time. You talk to someone who knows a little bit more than you do. You get some guidance. Try to get a program going where you can make some progress. Because that's what we're here for. It's all about growth. It's all about growth to our last breath. It's all about growth. And I'll just conclude with this awesome phrase that I heard someone say. I wish I knew her name. I think it was Gloria, but she's a travel writer. And she was giving this motivational talk that I heard. And I love this. She said, you don't have to change the entire world, just yours. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions I'd love to hear him.